Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today is a pleasure to welcome onto the show His Excellency Ricardo Lagos, who was president of Chile between 2000 and 2006. He was also instrumental, an instrumental figure in driving Chile towards democracy in the 80s. And for many of you who are into your history, you might remember a 1988 TV interview uh, during Chile's <laughs> referendum on Pinochet's continued rule, where Ricardo Lagos looks directly at the camera and points an accusatory finger at General Pinochet. Um, and I think many at the time didn't think that, uh, that Ricardo would live to see another day. But yet here we are over 30 years later with a distinguished statesman. And since leaving office in 2006, uh, Ricardo Lagos has launched his foundation, Fundación Democracia y Desarrollo, which promotes civic engagement and participation, uh, greater equality and social equity and collaboration between citizens and local government. So today we really do get to learn from a towering figure who shaped history, cares deeply about human rights and climate change, and our broader sustainable development agenda. Before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it is a real pleasure to welcome onto the show Ricardo Lagos, former president of Chile. And without further ado, Ricardo, a big heartfelt welcome onto the show today. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Alberto, and thank you for the very kind presentation that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it is my absolute pleasure. It is my absolute pleasure. There's so many areas that you're involved with, and you're so passionate about many of them, including human rights and climate. Difficult to know where to start with things. So why don't I defer to your judgment? Where would you like to start today's conversation? Well, all, all what I say is the following, that human rights is so important, and at the time when you're living under the dictatorship, then you have to fight for that. And, but the dictatorship is rather difficult to do it. I, I was having, in, on the dinner, uh, uh, President Bush asked me something about this part of my life and say, they told me that sometimes you were in prison. Why you were in prison? And I say, well, because there was an, again, an attempt against the life of the dictator, Augusto Pinochet, and they took me to Yale. Ah, so you participated in the attempt against... Uh, no, 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 I, I didn't attempt. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. But then why did you go to Yale? Well, because it was a dictatorship, you know? It's very simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, that's the way it was. Yeah. But then, well, uh, there was a recovery of democracy in Chile, and uh, it was the first uh, Minister of Education, and the President Elwin, then I was Minister of Infrastructure and Public Works, and, and finally I became a President in 2000, as you say, yes. 
And I understand you left office in 2006 with about a 70% approval rating. I think you were, had the constitution allowed you to run again, you, you would have been uh, probably winning with a landslide. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought that six years was enough because at that in my time, it was a six year presidency. And I thought that six years was enough, that's it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the, um, the foundation that, that you launched, so Fundación Democracia y Desarrollo. What, tell us a little bit about what it does and why does it? Well, let me put this way. For instance, now we are trying to do two things. Since we have a constitutional assembly and there was a discussion about the constitution, five years ago, we asked ourselves, can we have a constitution written by the people? And we used the web, in that time, five years ago, asking to the people, and then I have a, a commission of uh, members of the constitutional law panel of all the different political spectrum, and I say, you are not going to write the constitution. You are going to ask the right questions mm. <laughs> to the people. And then it was possible to write the constitution written by the people. And that was Two constitution, your constitution. And then we decided to have our constitution, what was the preferences of the people. And it was very fine. So now we decided to have a different thing. And we create a digital chair. And in that digital chair, you can sit as a constitutional member of the National Assembly. So you can discuss what they are discussing. <laughs> And, and we provide the facilities for people to use that. And I think that's going to be a very interesting thing. The other thing that I'm doing is because we are in the middle of an epochal change, you know, from the industrial revolution, now we are going to a digital revolution. My goodness, what is this revolution about? And then because of that epochal change, is together with the problem of COVID. And COVID then means that many people is reducing salaries. So the next question is what kind, not only what kind of economic activity we have to introduce in order to recover growth, but more important, how are we going to create the jobs that has been lost? And we are working in that area in a very interesting model. What is going to be the definition? Business as usual. And what may be the definition if the major, in the case of Chile, the major investments will take place in mining because of copper, will take place in energy because we are planning to have a hydrogen as a, our major element to produce energy. Mm -hmm. And then infrastructure. And those three areas, then we are looking how are we going to be able to create better jobs for the younger people and for ladies, for the females. And, and this is the, our proposal uh, to be very concrete. One thing is to recover the economy, but more important to recover jobs because the social cost, the social crisis with regard to the jobs that are being losing are very high. So we are devoting to those two areas as a way to help Chileans to be able to live behind this very difficult time. Yes. Excellent. 
Now, in terms of building back better and what the post-COVID world looks like, I don't know whether you're feeling optimistic or not, but the two bits that also people talk about are obviously climate and whether we build back as it was before or whether we build back better in a different way, more eco-friendly way. And the other is about education. And I know you held a portfolio, you were Minister of Education before you became president. Yeah. And there's so much in terms of children who are no longer in school, who were in school, particularly if we think about gender equity, girls who... Yeah, there are so many, there are so many areas now that are at the same time, you know. But the most important is, can the human beings keep living in this planet if we keep behaving like the behavior that we had in the last century? Because in the last century was the first time that we discovered that it's one thing to be living in this planet when we are one billion people, and it's quite different when you are living in this planet when there are six billion people. And when six billion people, well, we use so many things, the way that we behave is not the right way to behave if we want to keep the planet according to the need that we need. And then we discover that your emissions remain in the atmosphere, as I told you, 120 years. And the problem is that these emissions, my grandparents' emissions in Chile, 120 years, 100 years ago, was very small. But now those emissions disappear. But my emissions are probably 10 times the emissions of my grandparents. Therefore, the number of emissions abroad in the atmosphere is growing and growing and growing. And this is the, grand, the, the biggest challenge that we have. And therefore, we need to have tremendous effort. So the challenge that we have is tremendous. And then the question is, it's not if the planet will survive. The planet has been around during 5,000 billion years. <laughs> so it's no problem the planet. We human beings living in this planet, that is the problem. And there is no planet B to, to, to migrate, you know. And, and therefore, we have to take care of the planet. And this is why I think it's so important to fulfill the development goals of the United Nations. Mm. I remember you were either at a press conference or a lecture that you had given and somebody asked you about climate change and, and what to do. And you said, well, we are all responsible, not just me, you even, you know, and you were pointing to the person who was asking the question, who I, I think was a student. And then you said, you know, to, to youth, don't give up because you think we may have already lost the battle. Actually, quite the opposite. The battle is in full force right now. And I thought that was a very poignant observation. Yeah, of course, of course, because uh, that's, that's the only way, you know. How are you going to behave in order that you do it? So I have a, a, a very small to go the, the, the weekend close to Santiago. And when I bought that 30 years ago, there was a small, a small not, I wouldn't say river, it's a small arroyo. How do you say arroyo? Stream, a little stream. Stream, yeah, going through. Now it's not arroyo anymore disappear. So the question of climate change, I can see. Now, in order to have water, I need to go down and to have it taken out. Well, 
I decided then what to do because I need water in summertime to irrigate uh, the plants and the trees. So now I have uh, solar panels. That's a small contribution because if I want to need to, to get water from <laughs> underground, I need a motor. Oh, I, well, that, that kind of thing is, is essential. I mean, what is your amount of emissions that you have? And I think that everybody is responsible for that. Yeah. Uh, we, I remember we were talking earlier and you mentioned the, the, the usual question used to be, uh, what's the per capita income? Uh, when you're talking to someone, you're talking about their country. Now it should be, what are your per capita emissions? Because per capita emissions, I say, is going to be what degree of civility you have in your own country. How, what is the conscious that you have, you know? And per capita emissions then is going to be extremely important, you know? The problem for us is that we would like to increase our per capita income and therefore we are going to increase our per capita emissions. Can you increase per capita income without doing per capita emissions? Yes, it's possible. And as I told you before, the Swedish did that. They were able to increase 30%, 30% during 30 years, the level of the income. National income increased 30%. But they reduce the emissions 10%. Somebody told me you have to be Swedish to do that. <laughs> <laughs> How have things changed between the time you were president and now? So you were president 2000 to 2006. With regards to climate and, and the global leadership, let's say, you know, when you were sitting around the t a table of fellow leaders 20 years ago versus now. Yeah, well, it's quite different, you know, because when I was representative of Ban Ki-moon, and I had to talk with the leaders all over the world on the, on the, in that capacity. And it was very difficult for them to understand uh, the real pr problem, you know. For instance, in Brazil, uh, I remember talking with President Lula at that time. Uh, we were uh, together, presidents at the same time. So we have a good, uh, good friendship with President Lula. And I remember that I told him, look, Mr. President, I said, look, Lula, you have a record impossible to defeat. What is that? You emit more cutting the trees in the Amazon than what you emit producing the income to feed your people. So, Brazil is incredible. Emit more because deforestation, because Deforestation means that those trees that you cut, those trees are supposed to absorb the, the, the carbon emissions. In order to grow, the trees absorb carbon emissions. And since you cut, you are not going to absorb that anymore. So the way that you increase carbon emissions is bigger than the emissions producing the, per cap the, the, income, the national income of Brazil. So the, the, the largest country from the point of view of the economy, the largest country in, in, in Latin America, which is Brazil, well, Brazil emits less for per capita income, for the income that produce than with the emissions uh, for deforestation. So this is a tremendous challenge. And, and, and I, I know that the Brazilian doesn't like to, to remind this, uh, but uh, 
that some people say that the Amazon is the last resort for the for breathing human beings a clean air in this planet and that's a problem you know yeah how did you um one of the things i mean i can't help but you know when i when i'm looking at you right now we're having this conversation and i'm just thinking back into a more historical context and your 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 role and uh your consequential role and how things played out both in Chile and in the region. And I'm really curious to ask you, uh, shed a little bit of light on your background, your trajectory. Um, give us a little bit of a flavor for, for that. Well, I would say I, I, I was raised in a house where a middle income house. My mother used to be a teacher of piano. Uh, and others of the, fa the family was uh, uh, professors at the high school. Two of them were professors at the university level. During my time, if you get a diploma, then you are going to be something. <laughs> okay? The problem was to have a diploma. So I decided I went to the law school. And, and then I was a relatively good student at the law school. But then I decided to, to go for economics. And I, I enjoyed that. And then I decided then to go to the United States. And I went to Duke University. At that time, Duke University was a segregated university. I discovered that. Nevertheless, there was quite a number of people coming from India. There was some special program. So I had very good uh, in, Indian friends but no black people, no? Later, uh, when I was there, it was possible. And I remember that I was at that time when President Kennedy was inaugurated, the speech of President Kennedy at the time, and then the question of uh, the Cold War. It was very interesting. I never thought that I was going to see a black president of the United States. When that you are president, they invite you many times, and I was invited again to Duke University and give me an honorary degree. The first one took me, the, the PhD took me about three and a half years. This one took in 15 minutes only, <laughs> this degree. And I didn't know there was a huge audience there. And I had prepared some notes, but when I saw the audience, well, you know what I, I was talking about? The changes that I saw vis-a-vis -vis the race in the United States. Mm. How is possible that that beautiful country can make so much advances? And this was in 2005. And in 2005, I never thought that it was possible to have something like uh, President Obama as President of the United States. And you see the achievement that that means without violence. Now, you know, race is a difficult issue, but uh, chapeau for a country that can accomplish that. And this, I think, is so important, but probably uh, people in the U.S. They, they don't realize that, you know. Mm. Did you always want to get into politics? Did you think when you were, because you did your PhD at Duke, I, th I think in 1966 you got your PhD, if I remember, if I if I read correctly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did you already have it in you that you thought, well, 
I'm quite socially minded. I'm quite interested in, in having an impact on, on the world around me. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, I, I was fortunate enough, for instance, I, I, I enjoy teaching, you know, at the university level. And um, I got an appointment, quote unquote, as a visiting professor at, uh, at Brand University in, in, in Rhode Island. So I used to go twice a year there to, for a couple of weeks, uh, talking and giving some lectures, things like that. So I, I enjoyed that kind of thing, you know. Then, then the life is uh, some other things. I, I say that some, sometimes when they wanted to, to give you a, a diploma and then you get in speech. <laughs> <laughs> I, ha I have to ask you, I, I watched that interview uh, that TV interview that you gave in 1988. I didn't watch it while it was happening, but I've watched it subsequently. And and for the for the audience who's listening today, you you if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to just Google Ricardo Lagos TV interview 1988. And this is a time when when Augusto Pinochet was uh, ruling Chile, and you were in Chile giving this interview, and it is unequivocal in terms of your hand gestures, in terms of your of what you're actually saying, and uh, and also in terms of how you're pointing that finger and saying, that, you know, this isn't quite right. What were you thinking at the time and that you think you were actually going to be able to make it until tomorrow? Well, let me put this way. When we decided that it was possible to defeat Pinochet in a plebiscite that according to Pinochet's constitution has to take place eight years after being president, but this, that, that was uh, 15 years after being president because the first seven was a dictator and then they take the first eight years. And they put there that a plebiscite. And when we decided that was possible to defeat Pinochet in a plebiscite, in order to do that, we have to register a party, a political party, to have people there counting the votes. Right. So, I keep campaigning that give me your signature to have a political party. And look, when you have a political party, I will be entitled to go to TV. At that time, I had no idea what kind of program may emerge, but I knew that at that time I was something, you know. And therefore, finally, when two or three, the Christian Democrats enrolled a party, and we socialists were forbidden because socialists were forbidden in the constitution of Pinochet. So we decided to have a party for democracy. And therefore, when I was invited with another three persons, because four people for party mm -hmm. will have a, a program, we prepare very well, very conscious that I say, look, we have to, people will see us. And that was the, we, reproduce exactly the setup of the of the of the where are we going to have the meeting and the first preparation was a professional preparation and but i had no idea of the question and the the problem was that at the very end i knew that i was going to make a, a, an affirmation that the plebiscite of 81 to approve the constitution was fake Mm -hmm. And now we are going to have people in the in the electoral rooms, and this is when I was going straight to make my denunciation, and it was a stop. 
And this is why I said, look, sorry, I'm speaking for 15 years of silence. <laughs> and I keep talking against Pinochet. Well, that that part was was not, I didn't thought that because I'm going to talk about other things against Pinochet and I couldn't make it. So I was not very happy at the end of the program. And the journalists say to me, Mr. Lagos, you have no idea what you have accomplished today. And I discovered that the following day. I have to go to the downtown for some uh, uh, meetings, and people recognize me and say, hello, hello, hello. I discovered that TV is very important. <laughs> <laughs> because that was the most, that was a very energetic part of the interview. And so I guess at that time, you weren't thinking in the back of your head, this is going to get me locked up. You were thinking, this is what I need to say after 15 years of silence. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, uh, later, late, many years later, in Brown University, somebody said, look, I'm doing something, an anthropologist. I'm doing something, moments that are very important in some countries. And he had a, a, a study about the Lech Balesa making the speech in the shipyards. And, and he had the finger of Lagos. Uh -huh. <laughs> So I, since I used to go to Brown University, that uh, professor asked me to go to, to explain why I did what I did to the class when he was teaching these uh, particular moments of some people that he thought that was important for, wow. for the countries. Yeah. Because that, that finger that you're pointing directly at the camera, I think in Chile, that's the finger of Lagos is sort of... Yeah. Quite recognized as, a, as an expression. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. These days, these days, are you feeling optimistic? And I think maybe I gleaned from your from your answers that you are. Um, but are you feeling optimistic that despite political differences that might prevail in the world, that generally speaking, there is a growing consensus that the sustainability agenda, you know, we need to hop onto that. We need to embrace it. We need to to change the status quo. Do you feel optimistic about that? Well, because I think that. We are living two major elements together, as I used to, as I told you before, going from the industrial revolution to the digital, which is quite different, you know. And the digital revolution means that everybody talks to each other. And in the past, politics was very vertical. Leaders command. Political parties give orders to the members in parliament, you know. And if you don't obey the party, you will not go back to the parliament, okay? So it was very vertical. Now, not anymore, because people say, look, I, you have to listen to me between elections. I'm not going to wait four years to say no to you because you are a bad president. Let's forget about you. No. Now, people is much more horizontal. And therefore, I say, look, we have to create some political institutions that learn to listen. We still don't have that, but we will have. There's no question. I'm not saying that you are going to run a country with a plebiscite every day, because if you agree with this, point one. In, point. in your iPhone, you're holding an iPhone. Yeah. If you are against, number two. If you don't want to say anything, number three. You, you can have a, a plebiscite every day. There's no question. But you cannot run a country. But you can use elements to understand. And I, I like to say that 
that the difficult things that the president has to do probably are going to be living for the second part, not at the beginning, you know? It's very much like in the United States. The difficult things, the, the, the expression one-term president is rather derogatory for the, the presidents in the United States, one term. So that means that the day that you are elected the first time, automatically, the difficult thing that you have to do it in, in, in your head probably will remain for the second term. <laughs> and it, 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 you see, you analyze those, in the second term, they feel much, uh, much free to do things. Yeah. And what, what might those institutions look like that listen in between elect, election cycles? Well, I think that the, the, the people, uh, for instance, in some, some members in parliament, some parliaments, knows that once that you approve a law, citizens, if they don't like the law, can ask for the abrogation of the law. If a, in a particular number of people, etc. Uruguay has that in, in his legislation. But you know something? If you say, I'm going to abrogate that law, approved by parliament, if 20% of the people say, yes, we wanted to have a abrogate the law, then you have to make a plebiscite. One condition, the number of people that elect the parliament and the number of people that abrogate the law has to be bigger, those that are going to abrogate the law, than the number of people that choose the parliament. You see the provision? It's interesting. So you can, you can have political institutions that take the provisions adequately. In, in, in Finland, when parliament are discussing the law, a member of parliament can say, I would like to listen to the people, and you put the law in the official web of the parliament, and you can comment. Fascinating. How long I want to put in, in to, to comment? Two, two months, I wanted to listen two months, and you go and comment. And the other way around, the people can ask the parliament if the, the number of something, people, 20% or something, that the parliament discuss some particular issue. It's not saying that you have to solve the issue. No, you have to discuss only. I asked once to the president, the former president of the Finnish parliament, have you ever used that? And he said, yes, yes, we used one time. What did you use? Well, everybody talk about weddings of the same sex. I would say, yes, because once you were in government, nobody dare to do that because probably people is going to lose the election election because it was not, you never know, it's a very difficult issue to handle. But since this was asked by the people, then we make a legislation, and now you can marry people from the same sex. No, that's an example of things to know that is possible. So I think that uh, probably the political institution will emerge because of the digital age. Because I used to say that because the press was created by Gutenberg to produce the Bible, it took 130 years to have Legacette in France. 
It took 130 years after to think that it's possible to have a paper. And it took another 100 years that people reading a paper, well, somebody like Mr. Rousseau or Mr. Voltaire or some others decided that democracy is possible. So you can say, look, because you have a paper or you have a press, because that technology is possible to have democracy. And what is it, what are you going to publish? Well, the discussion that the king has with the court about public issues. And then there was one step further to say, well, why only the king? I can read the papers also, so I can also have some ideas about how to run this country. <laughs> Very dangerous, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? What's that key thing you want them to keep in mind? Well, I think, I think that, uh, first of all, you have some recollections of what you did, uh, well or bad or whatever, you know. At the very end, uh, the context is so important. So I would say, look, uh, as you re remember, I, I leave office with a very high uh, approval rate. Now, don't ask now, uh, what about Mr. Lagos? Because the approval rate is going down very rapidly in Chile for Mr. Lagos. <laughs> You see, the, the people think, uh, why don't you need the one, two, three, four? And that's part of, okay. But I think that uh, if you have been dealing with this kind of issues, and I became a politician involved because of Pinochet, it's really because uh, I always was involved in, in, in public affairs, if you allow me to say, but not a practical man, working in politics. And, I always say, look, this is because I was a dictator in Chile and I was involved. And uh, then, well, uh, I keep uh, doing some academic things and some podcasts like this one that I enjoy too, <laughs> and try to reflect about uh, what has been your life and what can you use uh, your free time that you have. That's the advantage that somebody like me, uh, more than 80 years old, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I know you said call me Ricardo, so I'll call you Ricardo, but um, I have to tell you it's been an absolute pleasure uh, hosting you on the show today and learning from you and hearing about some of these anecdotes. Uh, you played a very consequential role and you play a very consequential role. And so I really thank you very much for taking the time uh, to be with me and with our, with our audience today and uh, for sharing your wisdom with us. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for your invitation. It was uh, it was my my honor, really, to to talk with you today. Perfect, and that's a wrap. You've been listening to Ricardo Lagos, former president of Chile. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with others as well; it makes a big difference. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>